We sang this morning, uh, thanks to the Father of our Lord for grace that's been lavishly outpoured. Though unworthy, we've been rescued. Who can recount the ways we're blessed, dressed in Christ's robes of righteousness? We, his children, sons and daughters, safely pass through troubled waters. Hallelujah. Lord, we are, we are more rich than we even know through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we've trusted in him, there are promises that are secured, like we just sang, that we will see answered and fulfilled in the end, every last one. We can't ever recount all the ways that we're blessed through Christ, Lord, but our problem each week is that we have short-term memories. Life has a way of making us forget how rich we are. Other stuff around us seems better. So I pray you'd remind us this morning of where true riches are found, where truly abundant life is found, and how that's found in Christ alone. So we ask your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord, hear your word as we turn to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Our passage is not very long, just one little scene here, verses 13 through 21, which we're going to read in a minute. But I don't know uh, where you spent 4th of July. Betsy and the boys and I went up to Morro Bay where my in-laws live over 4th of July. Our daughter Lily was up at Hume with uh, our student ministry. But we took the boys up to Morro Bay. And on the 4th of July, we uh, decided to go up to Cayucos, which is the town just right above Morro Bay, because they have this huge street fair and blowout during the day, huge sandcastle contest by the pier and, and, and vending and with all kinds of great food. And so we drove up there, but it was so packed that we had to park like a mile and a half south of the exit for Cayucos, park in a neighborhood, get out to the beach and just walk a mile and a half up the beach to get there because uh, there was just no parking. So anyway, so we're walking. And if you've ever been to Cayucos, anyone, let me just know, anyone know Cayucos? Okay. Cayucos, it's beautiful. It's these bluffs along the beach packed with these amazing beachfront property houses. These man- some of them are mansions with multiple tiered sort of balconies and private stairways down to the, to the beach, their personal access to this amazing coastline. And as we were walking with the boys, just looking at house after house and seeing these big parties up there and smelling the smokers and cookouts and all this and hearing the music, by the time we got to the pier, I realized that in my heart there was this like... This longing like, man, that would be the life. I I realized that sort of coveting in my heart was just sort of building like these lucky people who have this place like this. It's just amazing. I was caught up in it. I got to to snap out of it at the pier. I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you caught yourself looking at what someone else had and thinking that must be the life? If only I had that, that would be something. Maybe it was driving through a neighborhood that you could never afford to buy a house in. I mean, that's that's in a fitting one right now for where we live here in Southern California. Maybe it was scrolling on Instagram past pictures of vacations that you'll probably never take. It could happen even here in this morning in worship. As we're singing, you could look across the sanctuary at someone else that you know that has something that your heart longs for and that you don't have. 
maybe a relationship, maybe a spouse or children, or you see them having friendships that you don't have, or a parent that you miss. Maybe it's a job that you love that you're without right now. Maybe it's skills or talents and all the admiration (laughs) and and the uh, attention that that brings that person. And you wish you had that. Maybe it's just plain physical fitness and health. And that's not the deck that God has dealt you. Maybe it's just a few less trials than you seem to have on your plate. And that person over there seems like it's just easy sailing. This may even seem petty, but even seeing people on social media and taking note that they have more followers than you and more likes than you and they get retweeted more than you. That sounds petty, but it can be in our heart. We can look and we can, we can think, oh, if only I had that. None of these things in themselves necessarily are bad things. Maybe that last one is, keeping track of likes and and retweets. But, But most of those things aren't bad in of themselves. In fact, many of them are good desires, things that are 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 worthy of aspiring to marriage and and being a parent and working uh, hard uh, to the Lord in a job. But it's when we find ourselves looking at those things that others have that we don't and thinking, if only I had that, that would be the life. That's where we're in trouble. That's what our passage here in Luke is going to confront us with this morning. We all have this inclination to look over our neighbor's fence and think, if only. So let's read it. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Remember when it says someone in the crowd, remember how big this crowd was last week as Eric preached, it said thousands of people, so many thousands of people now are following Jesus that they're actually tripping and trampling over one another. This is a significant crowd. Someone in the crowd, I need these on, said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, the crowd, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you're an underliner, that sentence right there is worth underlining. In fact, man, it struck me this week, we, would, we could do not much better than to make that a desktop wallpaper on a phone or a computer. That sentence, life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, 
fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow, that's a word. There's three men in this scene that we need to pay attention to. Each one of them has something for us to learn, a lesson. We need to pay attention to the man in the crowd because we are all more like him than we probably want to admit. We need to pay attention to the man in the parable because clearly we don't want to end up in the end like he does. We don't want to share his fate. And most importantly, we need to pay attention to the man in the scene called teacher because he loves us and he really wants us to know where abundant life is found. And it's not where the man in the crowd thinks and it's not where the man in the parable thought. So my outline this morning is just to be framed around these three men. One lesson from each of these men that we need to learn. Lesson number one. The lesson we need to learn from the man in the crowd is that covetousness is deadly. Coveting is one of those bible words, I think, that we don't use in day-to-day life. When was the last time that you used the word out loud, coveting? It sounds very King Jamesy. I mean, it's the, last, it's the 10th commandment, right? I think it's probably safe to say that maybe many of us think of coveting as a sort of a lower-tier sin. It's kind of a misdemeanor. It's like, it's, it's, you know, it's almost a pastime, you know? We just like kind of look at what other people have and, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, But you notice in the Bible, you know, it's not like lying and stealing and murder and adultery, right? But it's interesting. That's the 10th commandment. It comes right after those four. The New Testament even says often it's coveting that leads to those four. (laughs) Coveting is not a a lower tier sin. Covetousness is deadly, we see in this scene. Look at verse 13. It starts with this man and his demand. Here's this crowd of thousands and they're following Jesus because many of them are wanting to hear what he's teaching and they're seeing the signs and then they're wanting to know what Jesus has to say. But here's this man and he forces his way to the front of the crowd and he makes a demand of Jesus. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's all we know about the scenario. Does does he have a legitimate claim? Is his brother being unfair? Is he being taken advantage of? Maybe. We don't know. But it seems beside the point to Jesus. He's not asking Jesus to determine whether or not he's being fairly treated. He comes with a demand. Make my brother, tell my brother to give me my portion. In fact, what we see here is to this man in the crowd, he's willing to, to uh, abandon a brotherly relationship and family bond for the sake of getting what's his, isn't he? If you think about what it would take for the brother to divide the inheritance, it would probably mean to sell all of their estate so they can make a profit and then divide up the money, which would weaken the estate for the whole family. But this brother doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care if his brother's going to get hurt in the process. He wants his half. And Jesus is far more concerned with what's motivating this man in the crowd than whether or not his claim to half the inheritance is legitimate. Jesus sort of just sidesteps that. Look at verse 14. He declines the man's demand with a simple sentence. He says to him, man, uh, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? (laughs) In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come 
to settle little disputes like this. I've come for something way bigger. The Gospel of Luke says Jesus has come to proclaim that the kingdom of God promised for generations is now arriving in him. It's, it's here. It's at hand. Jesus, as this man is making his selfish, covetous demand, has set his face to Jerusalem to die on a cross to bear the guilt of the sins of the world so that anyone who believes in him might be spared perishing but have eternal life. And here comes this man with his demand. What Jesus sees behind this man's demand, I think, is that he's in danger of failing to enter into that kingdom. He's in the crowd. He's hearing the teaching. The seed of, of the good news of this kingdom is, being, is landing on him, but he's got a one-track mind, and Jesus sees he's in danger of failing to enter this kingdom. I was trying to think of an, an illustration. This isn't perfect, but this is the best I could come up with to how Jesus might have been feeling in that moment. Imagine yourself on the deck of the Titanic shortly after it had hit the iceberg, and everyone realizes the ship is sinking, and alarms are going off, and people are all scrambling on the deck, and family members are looking for one another, and they're grabbing their stuff, and there's panic and they're bumping into each other and tripping over one another and you're one of the deckhands and your job is to get people onto one of the lifeboats. And imagine some guy pushes his, through, his, his way through the chaos and says, hey, I want to see the captain. I want a refund. I paid a lot to be on this maiden voyage, on this fancy ship. This isn't what I paid for. I want my money back. I want to see the captain now. How would you be feeling as the deckhand? <laughs> Brother, your, your priorities are upside down right now. That refund is going to do you no good if you are on the bottom of the Atlantic. Seriously, what you're concerned about right now is going to be the death of you. I have a much greater concern. Get on the lifeboat. You can deal with the refund later. In a similar way, whether or not this man has a legitimate claim to half the inheritance is beside the point. Jesus sees a spirit and a desire in his heart, a covetous desire that's deadly. I was reminded of Paul in 1 Timothy. He says to Timothy, a young man, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. A covetous spirit is not something to be trifled with. It's deadly. And this man's covetousness was blinding him to why Jesus was there at all. This man is a walking example of the thorny soil. Remember the parable of the thorny soil? The thorny soil, the person who hears like that, has these cares and, and, and desires and pleasures of the world that they care about that choke out the truth of where real life comes from and it doesn't bear fruit. I want to ask, can you identify this man? Are you willing to admit that you can identify with this man? Are we ever tempted to reduce Jesus in our thinking? We'd never say it but to be being a divine arbitrator who exists to use his authority to rule in our favor and give us everything our hearts desire, and we kind of resent him when he doesn't. That's not why he came. We're more like this man than we admit. 
And he wasn't the only one who needed to hear what Jesus is about to say next. Look at verses 15 and 16. How interesting. He doesn't then lean in with this man and just say to him, verse 15, he turns to the crowd and says to them a warning. And verse 16, he tells them, the whole crowd, a parable to reinforce that warning. A warning with a ground that's illustrated with a parable. And he wants everyone there to hear because he assumes this man is not the only person in this crowd in the same danger. Many of us here need to hear the same warning. All of us need to hear it. Look at verse 15, the first half. Here's the warning. He says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Here's a definition of covetousness, my definition. It's the desire for anything and everything on the other side of your neighbor's fence that you don't have and you feel like at some level you can't live without or be content or happy without it. And Jesus warns against all covetousness should tell us we can covet just about anything. We can covet in any direction. We can covet physical, material stuff, things as insignificant as cars and clothes and houses and smartphones and the physical fitness of someone else and what we perceive to be better, you know, looks that they have than us. But we can covet non-material stuff, non-physical stuff, like other people's talents and skills, and we, can, and, and we can sort of discontentedly harden our hearts toward God. If only, God, you had made me like that. We can covet other people's experiences that we haven't had, the travels they've been able to take, the accomplishments that they've had that we haven't, opportunities they've been given that haven't been afforded to us. We can covet things that we've never had. We can covet things that we used to have and we don't anymore. But someone else does. And Jesus is saying it's dangerous, something to take care of and be on your guard against. Look at those two phrases. Take care. Watch out. Don't be blind to covetousness as it's trying to thorn its way into your heart and get a grip on it. Don't be oblivious to the subtle ways covetousness covetousness can take over. That's the way Paul talked about it, like a snare that ultimately plunges someone into destruction, but it doesn't happen immediately. So take care, watch out. But more than that, he says, be on your guard against. Don't just watch out, but be on the lookout with the intention of keeping any intruding covetousness out. Don't let it into your heart. This last week was the, the one-year uh, anniversary of the day we brought our dog Shiloh home. He's just a little one, over one-year-old. He's a border collie. And the first day we brought him home, he didn't seem like he was going to be a barker. He was just quiet and played around. I had, we had no idea the kind of barking that this dog was going to put us through. He is the consummate watchdog and guard dog. And he sits, we have one room of our house. He's sort of allowed in all the time, our back room, sliding door, view of our backyard. And he has this little place that he lies on and he keeps his, his nose looking out the, the window like this with both of his ears up. He's a border collie. Did I say that? 
sort of herding dog, and he is just watching the perimeter for those two squirrels that hang out in the palm tree that are always coming down into the yard, or birds that are landing on his toys in the yard, or Clyde the dog down, down the hill who gets up and looks through his fence, or coyotes that come through. I mean, he's just on, and anything he sees, he hears the gardener, and he's just bark, 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 and as soon as we open that door, he's just out there to just keep anything out. He is the master of our backyard. <laughs> That's the idea here with covetousness. Take care. Be on the lookout. Not just watching, but to be on guard against. Don't let it intrude. Whenever you see it, get it out of there. Take care. Guard against. Recognize it and repent of covetousness as its thorns attempt to grow in your heart. Why? Because it's fueled by a lie, Jesus says. Covetousness is fueled by a lie about where abundant life is really found, and it will choke out that truth if we let it. In John 10, Jesus says that he came so that we might have life and have it, what? Abundantly, not just life, but real, true, lasting, everlasting, full life. That's why Jesus has come. So we should listen carefully when the one who wants us to have abundant life tells us the lie that will keep us from it. So lesson number one from the man in the crowd is covetousness is deadly. I hope you're convinced if you weren't this morning when you came in here. Lesson number two from the man in the parable is this. All who treasure riches above God... Or I would say all who make riches their God will suffer the fool's fate, which we'll see in this parable. He starts in the second half of verse 15 with a ground for his warning. Here is the truth that when you don't believe it and you believe to the contrary will lead you to destruction. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So to believe that it does, I think, is to treasure riches above God or more accurately, to allow riches to be your God. Life is abundant possessions. God doesn't even factor in. In other words, if I have abundant possessions, I will have life, full stop. That's the lie. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5, it might strike you as as being extreme, but Paul names sins, which if they characterize your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. The impure will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know who else will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says? Everyone who is covetous. Parenthetically, he says, that is an idolater. In other words, if covetousness characterizes your life, if you live believing that my life is found in abundance of possessions, you actually don't worship the true God. You have a false God, and its name is possessions, physical or non-physical. To believe that life equals possessions is actually to exalt what is created above your creator and its false worship, and that's what we see in this man in the parable. We need to pay attention because aren't we all bombarded almost on a day, I would say not almost, on a daily basis, we are bombarded in our world with the message that life does consist in an abundance of possessions, aren't we? Magazine ads, billboards you drive by every day, YouTube ads that pop up, social media. 
I was just curious. I went on Instagram this last week and decided to do a search for the hashtag good life. I, I just thought uh, people, you know, posting videos and, 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 video, uh, and, po- and photos on Instagram and taking the time to tag that good life. It's saying something about this is a, a snapshot of what I think the good life is all about. 20.1 million photos and videos with hashtag good life. And you could probably imagine as I was scrolling through the feed what dominated it. Not everything, but it was dominated by possessions. It was dominated by food, usually fattening food, the best kind. <laughs> it was dominated by fashionable clothes and makeup and watches and supercars. One of the first pictures that came up was this like, you know, like $100,000 sports car with the Eiffel Tower in the back. So it got sports car and travel destination right there in the same picture. And speed bikes and hotels and resorts and, and cruise ships and all the finer things in life. It wasn't everything, but it dominated the feed. We're bombarded with, with the, the, the lie that no, life really is found in curating just the right bucket list and then successfully checking it off, but it's not. Now, don't get me wrong. So many of those things that, that people tag good life have some element of good to it. I'm guilty of posting plenty of pictures of delicious food that I had the experience of eating or even sunsets that I got to watch. But to believe that just having an abundance of those things will satisfy us and, and feel like abundant life. That's the lie according to Jesus. And we're all tempted to believe it at a practical level. So to convince us that this is not true, he tells a parable. Let's look at it. By the way, you might have noticed as I read, if you were really paying attention, you might have noticed that Jesus' warning is about coveting, but then he tells a, peril, a parable about greedy hoarding. In other words, the guy in the crowd's problem is that he doesn't have what he wants. The guy in the parable is in the opposite predicament. He has more than enough than he wants, and he doesn't want to share what he does have. So why doesn't Jesus tell a parable about covetousness to the covetous guy and the crowd? Well, in a roundabout way, I think he does. The man in the parable is the man that the, guy, the, man in the crowd wishes he was. The man in the parable is the man, what the man in the crowd thinks, if, if only I could be him, that would be the life. Because you see, both men, even though they're in totally opposite financial circumstances, they both believe the same truth, that life consists in an abundance of possessions. If you don't have possessions, then the way that lie can express itself is coveting. If you have an abundance of possessions, the way that lie can express itself is in selfish hoarding. But the root problem is the same, isn't it? The man in the crowd thinks, if I could just get half my inheritance, I could be that guy. But we see in this story, the irony is, is that all the abundant possessions the man in the parable amasses are going to slip right through his fingers. And the implication is probably into the covetous hands of his children who are going to fight over it. Jesus wants him and us to know through this parable that for all who treasure riches above God, your fate is going to be like this man in the parable. If you treasure riches above God, three things. Those riches will never be abundant enough. Those riches are going to be more temporary and fleeting than you think. And in the end, those riches won't commend you to God when you stand before him as judge. 
So let's look at the parable. Verse 16, here's this rich man, and his land produces plentifully. In other words, more than he needs. A man who already has more than he needs has a bumper crop come in, and now he has even more than he needs. But I want you to notice at the beginning, Jesus doesn't paint him as a villain. My son Levi is a very black and white thinker still, and if ever we're watching a movie or a TV show or we're reading a book, he always wants to ask, is he the bad guy? (laughs) Is he the bad guy? Is that the good guy? And I'm like, well, life's not quite like that. We're sort of all the bad guy, and redemption happens. You know, anyway, but at the beginning of this story, this guy's not painted as the bad guy. He didn't get rich in some sort of shady way. In fact, I think as Jesus probably began telling the story, everyone thought, oh, this is the good guy. I mean, clearly, God's favoring him, right? He's already wealthy, um, and, and, his, and his land is produced plentifully. But verse 17 is where we begin to see, no, he's not exactly the good guy. As he begins considering what he's going to do with his excess, Here's how he thinks. He knows he's harvested more than his barns can hold. And his belief that abundant life is found in abundant possessions is already revealing itself. Notice, this man gives no acknowledgement of gratitude to God. Zero. This man, as far as the parable presents him, is godless. He doesn't see this plenty as gift. It's just his due. It's his. And he gives no consideration to who else might benefit from the more than I need that I have. His only consideration is himself. He has one category for his possessions, and it's mine. Notice the personal first-person pronouns that dominate his thinking. I have nowhere to store my crops. So what's his solution? Verse 18 and 19, I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, he's going to pat his myself on the back. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You earned it. It's yours. You see, this man wouldn't say that he has more than he needs, ironically. It's not an overabundance to him. It's not enough. It's just all the more he can relax and eat and drink and be merry with. He can have that hashtag good life as far as he can see into the future. That's the problem. He can't see into the future. And he's about to learn three hard lessons. Lesson number one for this man is that for the one who treasures riches above God, those riches will never be abundant enough. I was thinking, if there is one truth that we all have learned through personal firsthand experience countless times and yet we still don't believe it, it's this. That somehow there isn't isn't enough possessions that will feel like enough, right? From early childhood with our Christmas list, that one big ticket item that's the biggest present that we're waiting, we open it last and that's the one that made Christmas awesome. Even as little kids, we know two or three weeks later, if that, growing bored and tired with that thing and already making out the next year's Christmas list. Even from childhood, we experience this taste of what we think is abundance isn't enough. I can't think of one vacation I came home from that I thought I was ready. Often I get home and I'm like, I can't believe it's over. I've been waiting for that for so long. Where are we going to go next? No one has to convince us of this truth. We've tasted this, right? That what we think is going to be enough when we actually have it turns out not to be enough. 
If abundant possessions are the key to abundant life, they'll never be enough. I came across a new, I'd never heard of this guy, John Trapp, Puritan pastor and writer. I was looking for stuff people had written on covetousness, and he wrote a number of things on covetousness, and I love this. John Trapp, born in 1601. Listen to this illustration, analogy, to try to get us to think about the fact that enough will never be enough. He said, a ship may be overladen with silver even unto sinking and yet still have space enough inside left to hold 10 times more. And so a covetous man, though he have enough to sink him, yet never happy enough to satisfy him. I love this. A circle cannot fill a triangle. And so neither can the whole world fill the heart of man. A circle cannot fill a triangle. It made me think of another guy from a couple few hundred years later, C.S. Lewis, who said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, if I find everything in this world feels like a circle that can't fill the triangle, what should I assume? Well, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. Or I would say I was made to be satisfied by something other than all of this world, the one who made this world. I want us to see that In Jesus wanting to lead us away from covetousness and greed, he's not wanting us to want less. He's actually wanting us to want more. What can only be found in God? He doesn't want us to settle, to try to fill the triangle of our lives with the circle of more possessions. It'll never happen. Lesson number two for the man. The one who treasures riches above God, those riches are going to be temporarily and fleeting more than they seem. Look at verse 20. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? God calls him a fool because he's falsely assumed not only that all these possessions were his, but that his own life was his. He didn't stop to even realize his own life was on loan from God and it was a loan that God could call up at any time. And the very same day he's doing this, thinking, oh, eat, drink, be merry, that's the day he's going to stand before God as judge. Do you ever consider that your death might come sooner than you think? The younger you are, the harder that probably is. I remember thinking this when my dad passed away, and I was cleaning through all his stuff, and I was looking at his his daily sort of, you know, uh, calendar that was in writing, a little notebook. And there's things written on there, appointments for phone calls and stuff beyond the day he died. Do you ever consider that you might have things written in your Google calendar right now that you won't meet? You might have things that you're accumulating and making plans to enjoy those and you won't. That's the point of this parable. The things you're accumulating, they may slip through your fingers and go to another. You don't know what tomorrow brings, James 4 says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How presumptuous. No matter how abundant your possessions are, they're on loan and you have no idea for how long and then God asks, whose will they be? But even more importantly, where will you stand before God? 
Lesson three is that for the one who treasures riches above God, those riches won't commend you to God when you stand before him. You won't stand before him and say, look at all my riches. They'll actually testify against you that your riches were your God. When he says your soul is required of you, that's judgment language. It doesn't just mean the man died. It means that he stood before God to give an account of his life and he'd chosen the foolish path. His God had given him his full reward and it was over. Because to treasure riches above God is idolatry. It's false worship. And like Paul said, those who treasure riches above God have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God, if that's you this morning, I beg you to reconsider. To, to admit what you already know about possessions, that they'll never satisfy enough. And to consider that the God who made all those possessions to know him and enjoy him forever is what your heart really is looking for. That's the triangle. He can fill it. Last lesson. It's a lesson from the man called teacher, Jesus here. So what's the alternative to treasuring riches above God. Well, it's this. All who treasure God above riches will be truly rich and will be rich toward God. That last phrase is a little bit interesting and it might be open to misunderstanding. I want to make sure we don't misunderstand it. Rich toward God might sound like abundant life is something that you obtain the more you give to God. If you are rich to God, then he will be rich back toward you. It's reciprocal, but that's not the way it works. Acts 17, Paul is preaching and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord over all riches, he doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not need anybody to be rich toward him to enrich him. Why? Well, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So if living rich toward God is the opposite of living, look at the first half of verse 21. Living to store up treasures for yourself. Rich toward God is the opposite of that. Then rich toward God is the opposite of the idolatry of treasuring riches over God or as your God. Living rich toward God then begins with recognizing how rich God is toward us and responding appropriately. Living rich toward God flows from the discovery that real life is found in knowing and enjoying our creator, the giver of life. Rich toward God flows out of treasuring and valuing God first above all that he's made. Rich toward God flows from recognizing that we owe our very life and breath and everything to God who gave it to us in the first place and can take it whenever he'd like. Rich toward God flows from seeing ourselves as undeserving stewards of everything we possess and not entitled owners of everything we have. Rich toward God flows from gratitude. It, it flows from knowing that every good earthly gift comes from him, even our trials and sufferings. This, this just blew my mind again in a fresh way this week. I was trying to think, so... What blows our categories for how rich God has promised to be toward us in Christ? You know, Walt had us, you know, listening to a paraphrase of all of Romans chapter 8 this morning. And Romans 8, 28 blows this up. I want to think, here's a false understanding that you might have of the goodness and kindness of God. 
It's this, you look at your life and it's like a ledger with two columns. And on one side of the column, everything in your life that you perceive to be a blessing and a good thing, a rich, rich that God gave you, that goes on this column over here. Everything that, you, that comes into your life that you don't perceive as a blessing, that goes into this column over here and it kind of counts against God. God's promise to you in Christ is not that in the end when the checkbook of his goodness is balanced that he will have shown you more good things than ill things. Romans 8.28 blows that way of thinking up when it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, everything in the end you will see on both sides of the ledger will be shown to have been included in the riches of kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. All of it to accomplish your greatest and most everlasting good. That's what that verse means. The good things we longed for and received and the good things we longed for and didn't receive will all be seen to have contributed to God's riches and kindness toward you through Christ Jesus. If God's a God who can do that, he is infinitely more valuable than all earthly possessions, isn't he? We may not see how all that's gonna work out until glory, but we can count on it. And Jesus is the guarantee. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then also graciously with him give us all things? Which brings us back here at the close to Jesus and why he came in the first place. Why his face was set toward Jerusalem when this man interrupted him. Grace, this morning, are you tempted to believe that God is not the greatest treasure? There's some other treasure that just looms bigger in the foreground for you. Are you tempted to believe that he's not the greatest giver? That he's holding out on you? Look at the cross. The cross is where the selfless one gave himself for the selfish. Like the man in the parable. It's where the all-sufficient one who needed nothing gave himself in the place of the insufficient ones. That's all of us. The cross is where the generous and giving one gave himself for all the covetous and grasping people like you and me to save us from eternal death, to forgive our sins and give us an abundant life. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what we're about to do here as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remind one another in a very visual, tangible, concrete way, where is abundant life found and where is it not found? I want to ask you to do something this morning that we don't normally do, but in just a minute, when you come forward to take the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you to find something you have with you that represents earthly possessions. Maybe it's your wallet or your purse. Just pull one credit card out. Maybe it's your car keys. Maybe it's your smartphone. It could be anything. If you don't have anything in your pockets, write down on the back of your bulletin or something, something that represents earthly possessions that at times you're tempted to think this is where life is found. And I just want you to bring it up with you in your left hand or whatever your opposite hand is if you're left hand. I'm not discriminating against left-handers here. In, your, in whatever hand you're not going to grab the bread with, right? I want you to bring it up. And as you reach out and you take the bread 
and the server looks at you and said, Christ's body was given for you, I want you to be thinking in your head, so that I might have abundant life. And as you dip it in the cup, and the server says, Christ's blood was shed for you, I want you to fill in the end of that in your brain, so that I might have abundant life. And you can eat it right there, or you can take it back to your seat. But as you do, I want you to be mindful. As you're putting the bread that you just dipped into your mouth, you are not only proclaiming that Christ's death and resurrection, this is where life comes from. But simultaneously, you're denouncing, this is not where life comes from. This is. 